Hello, this is episode number 115 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong, here in Istanbul. That in the background there is Ajda Pekan singing Ichiorum, or I'm Drinking, capturing the spirit of the age. Thanks for joining again. Thanks for staying loyal during COVID-19. In this episode, we hear from Michael Woodrich. He's Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Kansas and the co-author, along with Melvin Ingleby, of an interesting article in the April 2020 edition of the Journal of Democracy called The Pushback Against Populism Running on Radical Love in Turkey. The article examines the main opposition Republican People's Party's successful local election campaigns in major Turkish cities over a year ago now, in March 2019, when the CHP applied sophisticated methods of quote, radical love, outlined by strategist Atesh Ilyas Bashsoy, to defang the government's populist campaign and managed to elect Ekrem Imamoglu as mayor of Istanbul and Mansur Yavash as mayor of Ankara, as well as other candidates across the country. In the conversation, we talk about what exactly those tactics involved, whether they can be applied by opposition groups in other authoritarian political contexts, and also some of the tensions between these opposition mayors and the central Turkish government amid the coronavirus outbreak, including blockages by the government on aid campaigns, among other things. But before we get into all that, first let me remind you once again that if you haven't already, you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras, including transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on the podcast via email as soon as it's published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Tourist and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Finally, as a member, you also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Michael Woodrich. I started by asking him very generally to explain what the radical love strategy is and how it informed the opposition's local election campaign last year. It was very interesting to see the development of this within the the CHP, JHP. They've certainly, since 2002, there's been a variety of strategies that they've utilized to try to compete successfully with the AKP and Erdogan, mostly to no avail. But in, in the, the last municipal elections, they basically took the approach that we need to do things differently. We're spending way too much of our time basically focusing on Erdogan were vilifying his supporters and their concerns and their support of Erdogan and rather rather than setting up themselves as channeling this warring oppositional camp against a central threat the approach was we need to actually break down those walls we really need to sympathize and understand the Turkish population in general including the AKP supporters and as Bosch Soy said to Melvin in, in his interview we you know ignore the leader loved the supporters. And so it was really an approach to rethink 
the model of how the CHP apparatus, as it goes into campaigns, to think about how they comport themselves, how they would interact with uh, Turkish citizens, and rather than sounding elitist and superior in knowledge or tutelary or whatever, to actually be listening and talking, and rather rather than focusing on things like impressive mass mobilization, similar to what Muharrem Enjay did in the presidential election in 2018, that they would actually go small scale rather than create these big photo ops, that they would actually go into conservative neighborhoods, talk to the people on the street. And that this is a very counterintuitive approach in an environment where the situation is very polarized, when the opposition is feeling often rightfully so, that they're being directly embattled, that they're intentionally being disadvantaged in one way or another, that safeguards for them are being dismantled and they're indignant about that. It's very it's very common, not just in Turkey, but in political situations where oppositions are countering these kinds of conditions to go smash mouth right at the teeth of the leader in power. But the problem is that these polarizing political environments where you have a populist in power, they feed off of that direct combat. And so what this radical love approach by the CHP actually kind of diffused politics as usual. And they the CHP headquarters, as they were choosing the municipal mayors, especially for these large cities, they wanted to they even made sure that the candidates that were running were willing to kind of buy into and fit the profile of a radical love kind of candidate. Obviously, everyone paid attention to what was going on in Istanbul uh, internationally, but the, the same kind of contest was being waged in a lot of, uh, you know, Ankara, obviously, and uh, Adana and these other places. Izmir was already an opposition city, but, you know, even even the Bursa competition was really close. The candidate there lost by a fairly slim margin. And so the you could say that this this strategy really knocked the incumbent party, the dominant AKP position, it, it knocked them for a loop because it, it didn't meet their normal expectations of how they like to kind of play out these contests. So basically, it was a, an understanding that fighting, I suppose, populism with populism doesn't work. And, you know, learning that truth took a lot of lost elections, I suppose, um, yeah. down over and the it, years to understand that. You could say that populism can fight populism in places where there's a tight balance, perhaps. Like Greece would be a good example of that. And I, I don't know that populism, fighting populism, is actually good for governance. I, I don't think Greece is a model case of how you want to run you know, a country over time. Uh, but there, you basically have populists on the left and the right constantly duking it out against each other. But when you have a society where there's kind of a strong political imbalance and the populists have quite a quite a dominance in proportion. Populism, fighting populism, basically rallies its own base. And if your base is already 35%, you're going to lose that contest every time. Yeah. And underlying this strategy really is, it's based on really an understanding of how potent, I suppose, negative partisanship is. As you say, there are groups consolidating based around what the perceived other side is like. So when you, if you did come out swinging and, you know, were very truculent and uh, very directly targeting the leader that they associate with, then you're going to trigger all those negative emotions about those people on the other side. So this is almost a tactic to 
sidestep uh, or take the sting out of uh, that contestation, almost to do a little feint to take the other side off balance in a way. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, again, it's the opposition can be justifiably indignant. They can be understandably angry and understandably concerned. They can justifiably believe that in some ways democracy is being weakened or dismantled. All of those things can be true, but ironically, the course of action is not to channel that anger into combat because the actions of the opposition, the way that the way that a populist uses rhetoric, this kind of moral rhetoric in order to to mobilize supporters, they create this longstanding argument that the opposition is the status quo that doesn't care about them, that it was the opposition that was undemocratic. So if the opposition comes, you know, gnashing their teeth and, you know, by hook or by crook trying to get the dominant party, the populist party out of power, the populist just looks back at his base and says, see, I told you, look, can you imagine what they'll do if they get power again? They're able to basically use the aggressiveness of the opposition against them. It, it actually becomes mobilizing to the support base of the populist. And in the, in the case of Imam Olu, right, you, you see several points where you just feel like the AKP and, and Erdogan, as he's kind of trying to help things along in Istanbul, they're, they're just thrown off of their game. They don't know, like, how do you vilify somebody who's playing nice, right, and being respectful and <laughs> talking to your supporters and ways that resonate with them, it diffuses their ability to play campaign the way that they, they would like to. Could you give a couple of examples from the campaigns, either Ekrem Imamolu in Istanbul or Mansur Yavash in Ankara, a couple of examples of this strategy uh, being put into play? Well, I think I think one of the notable things is that you you saw very few major like campaign rallies by Imam Olu in Ankara. I believe it was also the case, although I didn't I was tracking the Istanbul one a lot more closely. But you know, Imam Olu, a lot of the you, you know the photo op or the videos of Imam Olu was him going to you know pazars and small areas and speaking to small groups of people and not the party faithful that he was often. In neighborhoods and places that that would seem to be places that the AKP would get more support. I think the other thing that Imam Olu did that was a really good example of this. It's really hard to find examples of Imam Olu actually talking about Erdogan. Right. The big difference from say the Muharrem Inje campaign. Obviously, Inje was running directly against Erdogan, but even Imam Olu hardly talked about Ben Ali Yildirim either. Like they, the rhetoric doesn't come up, and even. When when, even when Imam Olu did have bigger rallies, uh, he was talking about embracing people and th- about love and things that would seem almost a little cheesy or like rainbow or whatever, but he kept it polite. He also focused when he would go into the streets and talk to people, he wasn't telling them what they should think about or what should be their priorities and how they should vote. He was he was asking them questions and dialoguing with them honestly. And this was really kind of breaking some of the traditional narrative of the AKP about who the JHP is and what they do. And uh, and so by specifically focusing on policy and on good governance and on transparency and things that resonated with not just opposition supporters, but also AKP supporters, he was able to break down the walls enough so that the various supporters of the other opposition parties, but even some measure, I mean, it wasn't like all of, all of the support for the AKP suddenly 
suddenly swelled to Imam Ulu, but he was able to draw from their base unusually. You didn't really see Jehiped drawing from the AKP support in previous elections. As I was reading the article, it reminded me, um, you know, back in the early 90s, Erdogan himself, when he was campaigning to become Istanbul mayor all those years ago, he also used similar tactics in a way. He was he, he also canvassed for votes in, you know, pavions and nightclubs even. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the Refah party women's groups were real pioneers in reaching, you know, neighborhood housewives, uh, you know, constituencies that people didn't really even think about before. So in a way, he, 30 years ago, he was applying the same tactics as he rose up the local local political ranks. You're right. Yeah, it was successful for him too. I think that's part of the ir- irony. It's not like this method is uh, completely revolutionary or hasn't been used before. Y- you do see in a lot of ways that Erdogan, even the AKP in 2002, if you look at you know Erdogan's campaign speeches, the inclusivity, the broad reach uh, of the appeal has a strong resonance with this radical love notion, maybe not, not in complete totality, but you do see a lot of parallels there. And he definitely, he he definitely was campaigning both, you know, in his Istanbul days, but also on the national scene. He was campaigning with inclusivity, the sense that they were genuinely the party for everybody, and that it wasn't so much of an us versus them. It did eventually become that. That's the interesting development of the AKP over time. That it like it it doesn't start out in the kind of populism that we see now. In the, in the rhetoric or the post 2000 start, I think really starting in 2011, that campaign and moving forward, we start really seeing undeniable that populist morality, that populist ideology in the campaigns. But you, you're exactly right to notice that parallel. Erdogan, in a way, is, should be very familiar with the approach that Imam Olu was taking because he used it successfully and necessarily so at the time that he entered the political scene, which is also a caution to us. I mean, that we could say, well, okay, this is great. Jehepe has really solved something, but it doesn't, it's not a permanent solution. It's something that reduces polarization for a time, but you have, you have to continue to provide good governance and you have to continue to be a Democrat, right? You can take advantage of the power that you've been given uh, by your supporters. And you see that, I think, taking place over time and some of the changes of the AKP as time progressed. There's a video that's been going around in the last couple of days of uh, Erdogan speaking at a panel back in, I think, 2000, 2001. Uh, he came out in favor of LGBT rights, which is a very interesting example of him, um, you know, using the tactics of uh, radical love, perhaps. Um, yeah. Quite a stark contrast with the current situation. But um, I was reminded as well, you uh, you say there Imam Olu didn't address Erdogan. He barely addressed him directly during the campaign mm. in order to avoid triggering this kind of negative partisanship or getting involved in a war of words. And he still applies that tactic these days, despite things getting even more nasty, let's say. Mm -hmm. Uh, He still deliberately tries to avoid getting into these polemics with Erdogan. He often repeats this phrase, uh, the president's been misinformed. He was saying the same thing about Kanal Istanbul and almost naively presenting this front of saying, you know, Erdogan's not acting out of bad faith. He's just been misinformed. And that's a kind of neat way, I suppose, to sidestep getting into these polemical war of words with uh, with someone who still has huge support in society yeah no that's a that's a very good observation you know and it, you know thinking about that i just think of how many times erdogan has actually used that same rhetoric talking about america's president trump <laughs> 
that he, you know, that he, he for an, also an interesting relational dynamic between the two of them too. That, that at times when the U.S. appears to be doing something really negative for Turkey, that he's he's often very careful not to directly attribute the problem to Trump or that he's been misinformed or that it's his government underneath him and not him directly. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting strategy, and it's also you can see that the attempts for good governance and taking care of the people and transparency and municipal development that's being engaged in by Imam Olu and Mansur Yavash, you can see how it's driving Erdogan crazy. You know, although he's a bit more resigned from the public in recent days, probably actually related to health issues and COVID-19 and everything else, that the one area where you do see him cropping is he he's really concerned about these municipalities. And Erdogan is the first person to recognize how absolutely critical municipal control is, because at the end of the day, the Turkish people are very pragmatic and like good governance at the local level translates into a great deal of support nationally. You can see again and again Erdogan is concerned that the loss of the loss of these municipalities has not sat well with him. And he's really concerned about the success of these mayors in the big cities because they, they sit over a huge pool of votes. And if they do a good job, that could rapidly balance out the power dynamics between the AKP and and the CHP specifically. I want to come on a bit later to um, uh, some of those attempts, perhaps, of the government to counter the influence of uh, local administrations. Just going back to some of the more sort of theoretical side, I suppose. Uh, one thing I thought reading the reading the article is that there's a tension, I suppose. You know, the official campaign that's run by the party, that's run by the candidate is one thing, but supporters are another. And mm-hmm. it's very easy still to find examples of CHP recalcitrants or whatever. And that is what helps or has helped up until this point the government to consolidate its voters, particularly that was the case, I think, with the Inje campaign, Muharrem Inje, the presidential candidate of the opposition mm-hmm. in 2018. He was very much mobilising the base and people got very excited about him. But in retrospect, it was clear that in a way, by mobilising his base, he was able to mobilise the government supporters uh, because they could see what was coming. Whereas the Imam Ali campaign was a stark contrast to that. I guess what I'm saying is that it's very easy still, despite the fact that an official campaign has this very rigorous strategy of not triggering polarisation or not you know, allowing itself to get into these polemical debates it's quite easy still to find examples of um, people very willing to engage in that that seems basically to be what pro-government social media trolls spend 95% of the time doing you know, finding those examples and saying look this is actually what the opposition is yeah. like this is what their supporters are like and if you let yeah. them in you're going to regret it you could argue that in some ways that Kalich Darolu, his natural uh, personality and characteristics was pushing toward this direction somewhat, almost from the beginning of his leadership. But the same could be said that certainly the AKP isn't a group of people of one mind and one ideology, right? It's a, it's a bit of an umbrella coalition party. The CHP, in the same sense, is made up of importantly different factions. And Darulu is a social democrat. With Within the Turkish context, you normally expect leaders of political parties have this kind of strong authoritative nature that really pushes for a lot of discipline. Kalich Darulu, if you're wanting somebody who's going to whip everybody into line and get everybody quiet and on the same page, he doesn't have that kind of personality that's going to ultimately shut everybody up and make everybody toe the line. And that's been seen as a fault. I think you can look at it in different ways 
ways, but it's certainly been a particular challenge because the supporters of Jehepe, the CHP, are not are not of one mind. I mean, this is politics anywhere. You can always find those crazies that are going to be the, the one who's going to be willing to say something crazy under a microphone, and then you can broadcast that or certainly social media. Melvin Ingleby, my co-author for the piece, was able to have a lot of contact with uh, people within the, the CHP during the time, and it was clear that there were a lot of very reluctant people for the radical love plan, even the people in the official capacities. There were the people, particularly of the Muharram Inje camp, which you pointed out, that really didn't want to go along with this at all, really thought that the best the best approach was just to be angrier and to try to smash Erdogan in the teeth again. But they were, they were subdued enough during the local campaign, especially in the big cities, that people at least bought into it for that campaign. There was a question, even as soon as it was over, there were a lot of people within the CHP that were already beginning to kind of explain it away or try not to attribute the unexpected successes to the campaign strategy because they didn't want to, you know, they're angry and they're indignant and they feel justified in being angry and indignant. And they think a strong party should really campaign or stand on that platform of going head to head at that level. And so there are, I see this being in America, sometimes it's bizarre how the political dynamics in the U.S. parallel political dynamics in Turkey. I think that's one of the things that's thrown me off over the years is how parallel and similar certain patterns are when I wouldn't have necessarily expected it. But you you see that here with the with the the uh, Democratic Party in their confrontation with Trump. There were only a few candidates that were interested in something like a a similar radical love approach. And there are so many people that support the opposition, the Democratic Party in the U.S. that are angry and want to champion that anger. They really want to like mobilize people according to that anger and use that anger as a groundswell to remove Trump from office. What's interesting in the U.S. case is because the balance between the left and right is pretty close, they may be able to win the election on anger and indignance toward Trump. But the problem is, if you go toe-to-toe with the populace and you win, you don't diffuse the issues and the indignance and the, the moral argument on the other side. You don't bring it back down to politics as usual or politics based on policy and issues. It still becomes this moral battle. And so there's concerns, you know, if you look at parallel situations and just look even beyond Turkey, like in the U.S., Trump Trump is in a Republican. He's basically been a politician who co-opted a party and basically kind of reconfigured it in his nature. Well, what he's done is he's awakened the worst elements of, of factions that maybe were connected with the Republican Party but didn't have much authority or power. He's basically awakened those people and given them power. And in the U.S. case, there's a danger that, that someone much younger, more charismatic, much more intelligent than Trump will come back with a vengeance because Trump has has opened that door. But the problem is that like people see the parallels between my observations in Turkey and what's going on in the U.S. But one of the things that's interesting to me is that a lot of supporters of the Democrat Democratic Party get very angry <laughs> with my observations because they, they don't want to back down off of Trump. They don't want to listen to the people that supported him. They want to feel justified and basically just seeing those people as morons and you know we're we're going to champion our own things and we're going to be angry and we're going to win the way we want to do it and we don't want to hear that we're supposed to play nice and listen to the other side and try to come up with solutions that cross
crosscut the boundaries. People are really angry and don't want to think about combating populism in a diffusing sort of way. They want to go right at it. And I think so. going back to Turkey, just like you observed, despite the, some of the successes of the municipal elections, there's still quite a few folks within the CHP, not even just their supporters. I think even some at the administrative levels of the party were really never wild about this campaign strategy. And so even then, because the AKP actually feeds off of those people, just like you're noted, they're taking the vitriolic, angry quotes and saying, look, see, here's the here's the true face of the party behind these people that appear to be playing nice. Now, one reservation, I suppose, is that this radical love tactic is really just a tactic for winning an election. It's not a program for change. It's not a program for administration. And what we've seen in Turkey since the local elections last year is that the institutional reins of power are very much still in the government's hands. Ankara mm-hmm. really still does hold you know, the whip hand in all kinds of areas. And we've seen this very clearly throughout the coronavirus outbreak because you know we've seen uh, local municipalities tried to do various kind of aid collection campaigns, municipalities across the country really trying to do various sort of local support campaigns. And they've been frustrated in that by the local uh, security forces who are linked to the government or linked to the central state authority. And um, it's a kind of very vivid example showing how there is really a very limited amount that these local opposition administrations can actually do. It's arguable. We can envisage maybe in four years time, another local election campaign happening in the government time around and saying, you know, these local municipalities have not done anything. And that will look convincing to some voters because they've not been able to do anything Mm -hmm. because of these uh, dynamics that we're talking about. So in a way, what I'm saying is this is a nice way of winning an election for a brief month or two during an election campaign. But when it comes to actually running a local administration in an increasingly authoritarian environment, it's probably not going to be enough. Mm hmm. I am a little bit more optimistic about what has gone on since then, although I think your general point is right. And it's a point that we made uh, toward the end of the the paper that it's one thing to win an election. It's another thing to govern afterwards and especially govern in an environment that's still largely controlled by the dominant power and not the opposition. They're, of course, going to use everything at their disposal to slow these mayors down. The thing that we've seen, though, is you're right. There's been a lot of obstruction, but it's been very visible, transparent obstruction, and that the municipalities have still been able to be transparent for the most part, and there's been some positive elements of their governance, and often where they're obstructed, it becomes becomes such a publicly blatant obstruction by the central government to prevent them from doing something that the, the local administrators want to do. You're right that certainly the AKP in the end is going to say something like, well, how much did they get done over the time that they were in power? They're going to make that argument. But I think there's going to be a a smaller set of people that actually believe that that's because the CHP wasn't trying to do something different. And so the very public nature of them trying to step in and block local municipalities from taking care of their people within their city, it's not being done in quiet. More people are able to see this. I think it's more transparent. I actually think the government 
this is all signs that the government party is feeling more desperate about its position. For a long period of time, even when it was behaving in ways that outside observers might say was undemocratic, they were still able to frame their behaviors as ultimately supporting democracy for their supporters. Their actions were engaged and spun in such a way that they still seemed as if they were championing democracy. I think that there are many opposition that just assume that AKP supporters really don't care about democracy. They just love Erdogan. And of course, there is a fraction of the population that that, that might be true. But I actually think a lot of the support for Erdogan is fairly pragmatic. I don't think that even the people that, that have traditionally supported Erdogan actually believe that they are against democracy or that, that they're somehow undemocratic in their support for Erdogan. But I think his actions over the last years, I think even for this segment of his longstanding base of support, I think there's a population there that's experiencing a lot of dissonance. We can see that in evidence in a lot of different ways, but he's lost the ability to continue to appear to be a Democrat while he's engaging in the behaviors that he behaves in. He's like what the CHP is doing is not aggressive against the AKP. They're not attacking the AKP. They're just trying to help people. And when the AKP steps in to block that, that I actually do think that creates a political problem for them. Exactly how that will play out in the future, I can't exactly say. But in terms of their popular support, in terms of their being able to like completely control their base, to the extent that they depend on elections, I think they've continued to weaken themselves even since uh, last summer. The AKP is a, if we understand it as some sort of ideology or ideological space on the center right, this kind of constellation of principles and values, like that's not going to go away. That, that, that It's a necessary part of Turkish politics, and it's it definitely has a place even in the most liberal of Turkish democracies. It's it's not going away. They're going away. There's going to be people that support that. There's also going to be people that just really love Erdogan, the person, that are always going to support him to the end. But in terms of how they They've had to kind of go away from their own promises, from their own ideology, from the things that used to make the AKP great and a strong party in Turkey. I think they've weakened themselves. And uh, the internal fragmentation of the party and the, the earlier leaders that have kind of broken away or stood their distance, not that those parties in and of themselves will necessarily take the steam away, but they all signal things that suggest, you know, that when we think of the AKP as a party that's getting social support, there's lots of evidence to show that that's being weakened uh, by the current environment and the politics. And the opposition, maybe for the first time, <laughs> has begun to help that weakening by the way they played politics in the, in the last municipal elections. I suppose one thing that some people have started to tentatively speculate on is uh, the fact that the AKP seems to be weakening inexorably for the last few years, really. Its poll ratings have struggled. It's struggled in elections. There seems to be a, a lack of love, perhaps, in, in society for it. And people associate a lot of negative things with it, discontent with Syrian refugees, the economic trouble, you know, various things. You know, Berat al-Bayrak is not a popular figure, the finance minister, Erdogan's son-in-law, and he's becoming almost the face of the AKP in a way or associated very closely with it. And it's possible, perhaps, to imagine a future of Erdogan still being there, but the AKP continuing to hemorrhage support and the parliamentary system continuing to just limp, limp on but not really be effective and basically for party politics to perhaps just disappear in favour of this more presidential system. I don't know if what you think about that, like, in the years to come, could that be a big change that we see, you know, parties becoming less and less important and presidential, national 
politics becoming the only game in town effectively and in line with that that would make local politics pretty unimportant as well what do you think about that scenario do you think it's convincing or would you be a bit more hesitant Yes and no. There's already evidence that to some extent party politics in general has already weakened. But I would I would say in a way what's happened is that parliament has been effectively, you know, the Mejlis has been somewhat bypassed and that like as time is growing, I agree that there's kind of like there's the presidential politics and local politics. I think the that mid-level of kind of consensus parliamentary legislative politics has definitely been weakened. But in Turkey, just because of the nature of how people orient themselves to politics, I think at a minimum, uh, the the national leader certainly has been, that part has been strengthened if it wasn't already strong. But the other thing that I think is still as strong as ever, if not stronger, is local politics. And if you think about it, right, in this current situation, the second most important person to the president in terms of popular support is the mayor of Istanbul. The in in terms of the amount of votes that they receive to put themselves into op- office so that no one garners more voting support than first and foremost the president, obviously, but then after that, you have the mayor of Istanbul and then the mayors of the other big cities. The only way that Erdogan could change this is if he would, which would be really weird for him because he his whole political success came out of this situation that was created in the 1980s that gave municipal mayors the ability to to do local development and to basically do effective governance at the local level. The only way he would be able to bypass this is if he they redid, reconstructed the constitution or changed the laws so that municipalities were no longer had of this decentralized self-governance, that basically more power was given to the volleys and that that local government could basically like vote on changing street signs and had no economic power or ability to generate revenue. But as long as that's the case, and as long as there's voting for mayors, I actually think local elections are going to stay just as important as ever. But at the national party level, and understanding parties as parties, I agree with you, that's currently been weakened. But on the other hand, the other thing that I would say is that I'm still fairly optimistic that Turks' supporters of Erdogan or not, or whoever, Turks aren't just going to completely abandon the notion of democracy. I think it's sat in the country too long that they'll never completely move toward an authoritarian situation where legislation and, and multi-parties and, and multiple leaders or whatever is not important. I have a hard time believing that people actually think that, okay, well, let's just get rid of all of that. Let's get rid of all of our tradition. I think there would still need to be a process that's hard for me to imagine for people to at least to give away the, the superficiality of its continuance at least. They would have to believe that there's some sort of uh, legitimate competition and contestation and that people's votes actually mean something. I I don't think Turks are willing to just have a, you know, president for life kind of scenario or a a situation where they 97%, you know, the presidential elections are a farce, you know, and the only candidate is somebody nobody's ever heard of that runs against the, the person. And those kinds of scenarios that you see in other countries, I have a hard time believing that 
Turkish society, no matter where they're at on the left or the right, would would ever get to the point of thinking, okay, we're willing to completely give up on democracy. But I think for the near future, as long as Erdogan's in power, we're definitely going to see this level where the this sort of situation where the where in the past the parliament used to be so important even for the the leader who was in power. That's now the parliament, the assembly has become a lot less important, and it's president and then local administrators are the ones who have the most direct effect on people's day-to-day. So we're talking a year after the local election. And just finally, I wonder if you could compare the performances effectively of the uh, Istanbul mayor Ekremi Momolu and uh, Ankara mayor Mansour Yabash. Now, these are the two opposition leaders who won these uh, respective elections. And obviously, Imamolu got a lot of attention, more attention nationally, more attention internationally. And it was a much bigger win, really, symbolically. And everything about it, the population of Istanbul is obviously much bigger than Ankara. But there seems to be a narrative developing in Turkey, particularly among opposition people, that Yavash, his performance since then has been more sure, uh, more assured, perhaps more sure footed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's kind of also applied the strategy, I suppose, of um, radical love. He's not engaged in polarizing sort of language. He's not directly targeted uh, the government or, or Erdogan. But he's been quite a kind of low key, but people would say effective administrator. And um, his star has risen. I think in the in the year mm-hmm. since he was elected. Just wonder if you could talk about Yavash and uh, compare the two administrations effectively. You know, how are people seeing what they're doing in the year since the local election last year? I think you, your perceptions there fit my perceptions, and I, I think you might be even aware, kind of being there and in that environment every day, and you know, me being over here and having to follow it from a distance. I think I'm even, you know, happy that my observations seem to match with yours, even from this great distance. So, I, in some ways, I would I would defer to your insights there. But I, I do agree with you. I, you know, like even before the local elections, not considering radical love, one assumed that Mansur Yavash was going to win Ankara eventually. He had been such an effective administrator already. Like his claim to fame, his reason for being a candidate in the first place, uh, even in 2014 was because he was really good at it. And Imam Olu has a bit more of the charismatic politician that might do well at a kind of national politics level. He, he's had a lot of successes, I think, as as mayor of Istanbul. There's been successes there. But I agree with you. There's Yavash's real strength is this kind of competent governance that gives people a lot of security knowing that he's really thinking through this. So I, I have not been surprised at all that his star is rising and I agree with you it just seems like again and again what you you see competence most consistently from Yavash and because he didn't stick out as much as as somebody who in the spotlight of a camera but as somebody who kind of gets his credibility and credits from his actions I think that's put him in a good position the other thing about Yavash is that even though he ran both in 2014 and in 2019 for the CHP he was he always had this credentials that transcended the CHP, that he, he wasn't this kind of stalwart, diehard Kemalist politician, but one who appeals to a lot of different uh, segments. And so he that kind of broad base uh, for his credentials, along with good governance, gives him more kudos. He's, he's even harder to dismiss, I think, from the AK 
IAP perspective, you know, it's a, it's a bit easier to go after Imam Olu. But I, th- I think they've both done pretty decently, even in uh, the other big cities. I think there's been evidence that the mayors have done a decent job, but probably of all of them, even going into it beforehand, not considering radical love. I think if people were like, who, who would you predict would be the best at governance? I think Mansur Yavash was also already at the top of that list. And so it's it's not surprising that a year into things, he's he's really sticking out as being an excellent administrator. Yeah, and he's probably got an easier job as well because it's a smaller budget. It's uh, less in the public eye and um, it's, it didn't sting as much for the, the AK party to lose Ankara compared with Istanbul. You know, they... I, I think they knew in advance that they were going to lose Ankara yeah. this time. Yeah, I think so, definitely. He pro- I don't want to say it, like he probably won in 2014 as well, but... Uh... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was Michael Wuthrich. Many thanks to him for joining for this episode number 115. If you want to read the article we were discussing, I've put up a link at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com so you can find it there. If you want to go delving into the archives, me and Michael actually spoke for an episode of Turkey Book Talk way back in September 2016 discussing his excellent book, National Elections in Turkey. I definitely recommend that book, by the way, if you want to properly geek out going into the granular detail about every one of Turkey's general elections since 1950. Also, don't forget to check Check out Turkey Book Talk's partner initiative, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razie Akkoch and Diego Cupolo, friends of the podcast. It's a very useful weekly one-stop shop that packages together all the major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, dropping into your email inbox every Thursday. Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Search for Turkey Recap on Twitter to subscribe. And by the way, they have also just started a Patreon account for anyone who wants to support their excellent work. Of course, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talks, excellent work. You can become a member on Patreon to support us. Membership gets you that IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talks Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so please send any recommendations, feedback, or abuse to William. John Armstrong at gmail.com. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening and stay safe. Geçe gündüz içiyorum aşkım ben. Bakışların hiç çıkmıyor aklımdan. 